You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading today is from Genesis 2, uh, 4 through 24. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water and to garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bajalam and Ankh stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Syria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, eat of it, you surely you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning. Thank you, Derek. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we will move into our text and our topic for today. Father, ask now what I've already asked for this morning that you would take the next six weeks and that you would both reform our worship according to your word and that you would unify. Um, our our desire and our vision for what worship is together as your people. And then God, on top of those things, beside those things, Lord, I ask for faith. Um, Faith to receive the good gifts that you give us um, at every turn um, on a Sunday when we worship. Um, Whether it's the the graciousness of your call, the mercy that, that hears our sins and forgives our sins, the goodness of a God who unifies us around a common vision of the world and the creed, a God who speaks to us by his word and then feeds us with bread and wine and sends us to bear these blessings into the world. God, I pray that you would um, help us to receive all of those gifts and the way that they, they form and reshape and redefine every facet of life. God, I pray that you would help us to receive those gifts and their impact by faith. So God, teach us what it is that you're up to when we gather in this space on a Sunday. Teach us what it is that you long for us, that you, you are actually giving us by your spirit and how it changes everything. In your name we pray, amen. A few years ago, U2 uh, was streaming one of their concerts maybe the 360 tour, the Pop Mart tour, that was, that was an old one. They were streaming one of their, one of their concerts, um, and uh, I, I was um, kind of watching along uh, on, on the video and then also checking um, the social media. Um, and a pastor who I knew um, posted, this is the best church service I've ever been to. Um, a few years ago, a, a musician named Hoser, Hosier, I don't know how to say his name. Jose <laughs> I wrote a song called Take Me to Church about, well, things we shouldn't necessarily talk about right now at church. Um, some of us have grown up in all kinds of different churches. Whether you um, show up at a church building and you walk into a dark room with lasers and smoke machines and uh, really, really loud and expensive speaker arrays um, kind of banging away, um, and that's been called church. Some of you have maybe walked into cathedrals with their soaring ceilings and and, um, stained glass windows, and and that was what going to church was. Um, Some of you, some of us, uh, grew up in um, the 80s, and, and church was a very contemporary to the 80s looking room with a wrap around balcony um, and uh, four adults on stage with microphones with different colored tops singing the special, and that was going to church. Um, uh, we have all kinds of confusion in our day among pastors and non pastors, among Christians and non Christians, uh, about what church is and what worship is. Massive confusion and disarray. And for the most part, I think Christians have kind of shrugged our shoulders. Um, Occasionally you'll find out or hear about kind of different kinds of worship wars going on in different denominations, Um, debates about this style of music versus this style of music, 
debates over whether or not it's appropriate to have skits or special music or dance interpretations of sermons, which I think would be awesome. Um, not really, but it kind of. Um, I'm going on in worship. You have all kinds of debates, all kinds of confusion um, happening. But for the most part, um, we've arrived at kind of this moment in, at least within American evangelicalism, where we largely kind of shrug our shoulders and we shrug our shoulders over what worship should look like and what it is and what different churches are doing and how to answer the question of what is worship, what, what appropriate worship is in the church. We shrug our shoulders because we've adopted a kind of individualistic mindset, a consumerist mindset um, as we approach everything. And so you like McDonald's fries, you like Arby's curly fries, everyone knows which one's better. Um, but hey, if, that, if like you're into those fries and I'm into these fries, who cares? If you're into lasers and smoke machines, awesome. I'm into high liturgy and cathedral ceilings. But whatever you're into, whatever your take is, whatever taste you may have, um, that's fine. That's you. Who am I to judge that choice? Um, simply find a church that kind of meets your particular tastes with regard to music or preaching or liturgy or people or dress or styles and go there. It's fine. So long as you kind of have some sort of engagement with church, that's okay. And now, since the advent of COVID, we've moved even beyond the need to gather in a church um, so that church now can be a thing that you watch online with the sacraments being Welch's um, grape soda. No, it's Welch's grape juice. What's the grape soda? I kept trying to think of it this morning. I couldn't think of it. Just call it Raz Grape Soda. Um, <laughs> which would be raspberries. So anyway, um, with your ras grape soda and your pretzels dipped in for communion, um, church can be just you by yourself in your PJs or not PJs, totally up to you, on your couch, watching on your Apple TV. Um, and that can be church. That can be worship. In other words, we have no shared consensus, no clear vision together as, as what it means to be the people of God, what it means to gather as the church, and as the church gathered in the presence of God, what in the world are we doing? What's the goal? What are we aiming at? We have a world, and, and frankly, a Western church that is marked by confusion, such that many of us have arrived in this room, and we've experienced kind of maybe every brand of church, every flavor of Christian worship imaginable. Um, and, and my expectation, just as a pastor, is particularly in a young church like ours, and we have a ton of people coming from a lot of different traditions in this room, is that we don't have, frankly, in this room, probably a shared, unified consensus on, on what we're doing here when we gather on a Sunday. And my guess is right now as a church, um, if, if someone were to come in and survey a random 20 people in this church and ask them, hey, what do you guys do on a Sunday? It's weird. You come to this weird old building with neon lights at the top of it, but a cool dome so that if people are whispering over there, you can hear them over here. What is it you guys are doing in there? That there'd be 20 different answers. And a lot of those answers would be diametrically opposed and in conflict with one another. And so what I've prayed that God would do for us over the next six weeks as we kick off this winter and spring is he, he would unify our vision around how the Bible describes the nature of Christian worship. That God would define for us 
um, what it is that we're doing when we show up here at 10 a.m. on a Sunday, or some of you 10.15 on a Sunday morning, or some of you 10.25 on a Sunday morning, in which case you've missed roughly a third of the service. <clears throat> but, but that God would actually unify us as a church around a definition of what we're doing so that we, we'd arrive in this room with the same expectations and hopes, believing God and setting out to do the same thing together. That's my prayer and hope. And so this week, just kind of let you know where we're going. Um, this week, I want to set the table. I'm going to give us kind of a, a biblical, a grand biblical vision of the centrality of worship. Why what we do when we gather in this room, it matters. It's important. And it's important in a whole lot of ways that our world doesn't recognize. And frankly, most Christians don't recognize. Um, in fact, I'm going to go as far as to say that what we do in this room, Sunday in and Sunday out, is the most important thing that you can do in the world. That there is nothing more valuable than gathering together with the people of God in the presence of God around this table to worship him. It is, in fact, I will, I will make the argument in a minute, um, foundational to the definition of what it means to be human. So that's this week. What are we up to um, from a broad perspective? And then over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to walk through every single step of our liturgy and talk about how God meets us in these different ways um, um, in our service, what he is doing for us, what he's speaking to us each week in these moments in our service, and how that should reshape and redefine every single facet of our lives. In other words, that what we do here, everything from the call to worship to, to, to confessing our sins and receiving pardon, to hearing the word proclaimed and gathering around this table with, for word and sacrament, um, to, to, to the final one, being sent out from this place, giving thanks and bearing a benediction to the world, um, that all of these things have, have everything to do with every single part of your life. Um, that they actually reframe and redefine parenting and marriage and how you speak to one another and your job. They, they have direct impact in the work that you do on Monday, wherever that work is, whether it's at home or in an office downtown or in a coffee shop or working with wood. That these things shape and define and reform and redeem every single facet of life. So that's where we're going to go over the course of the next five weeks after today. Um, and then once we finish this series, just for those of you who like to plan ahead, um, we're going to be spending basically the rest of the spring all the way up till Easter um, walking through the book of Nehemiah. Um, and I have of reasons why we've connected worship here on the front end and Nehemiah um, after we talk about worship here this January um, that we'll get into when we get to Nehemiah. But um, today I want to kick off, like, why is there so much confusion um, and then try to get all the way down to the bedrock of how does the Bible define the nature of worship. And so um, I want to track kind of our modern confusion. Um, this might feel a little bit less like preaching for the next couple of minutes and, and more like a lecture. Um, and I apologize for a minute, but I promise I'll preach at you before we get done. 
um, that, that, that there have been a, a handful of kind of movements that have taken place as the surrounding culture and ways of thinking about the world and particularly ways of thinking about the human person have influenced and shaped our understanding of worship in really, really deleterious ways. Um, it's had a huge negative impact on on. Christian understandings of worship. And so I want to talk through those because most of us, um, dare I say, every single one of us in this room um, have grown up, and, and for those of us who've grown up around the church, have been influenced by these kind of cultural movements um, that have refined, malformed our understanding of worship through the years. And, and so um, I, I want to start with kind of this modern obsession with relevance. And so you see this kind of developing in the late 70s and early 80s, even all the way back into the 60s. Um, there was a movement um, in the church to make, um, to, to, to make the, the worship of the church immediately and practically relevant um, to everyone in everyday life. Now, now um, as I say these things, please don't misunderstand me. Relevance matters. But it doesn't matter the way it did in the 80s. <laughs> In other words, church and worship, the, the goal of church and the goal of worship was to give people kind of three steps to a better life. It was to be immediately and um, immediately accessible and relevant to a non-Christian walking in off the street. I mean, you think of churches like Willow Creek and the whole seeker-sensitive movement, um, the entire way that the church was framed and the whole goal of worship on a Sunday was to be immediately accessible to anybody to be immediately relevant without any translation, without faith, without anything to anyone who would walk in the door. In other words, Jesus became within that system a means to some other end, the means to a better life, a better marriage, happier kind of a happier constitution, a way of casting off anxiety. Um, the, the, the obsession of the day was relevance. Now that hasn't gone away. You shouldn't think of these as kind of separate movements that haven't influenced each other. You should think of them more like layer cakes. So base layer, relevance, modern accessibility. But the center of that worship, that there was a shift that took place. The center was no longer God. The center was no longer God's glory, God's holiness. The center was no longer, how do we faithfully expound the words of God and submit to the presence of God and the goodness of God? No, the center of that became me and my neighbor. It became about um, the, the evaluation of what took place on a Sunday was no longer, and this is going to be the, the question that permeates the next five weeks for us. Um, oh, that we would be a people that what? The measure by which we evaluate what happens here on a Sunday is not my emotions. It's not how I was practically helped. It was not, did my marriage improve? It was not, did I become a better parent? That the evaluation of what happens on a Sunday, anytime a church gathers, um, is the question, was God pleased? Was he honored? Was he worshipped in the way that he commands? And with the shift to relevance, that was no longer the point of evaluation. The measuring stick became, how, how did this help me do better at life? Which, do better at life. <laughs> but that should not be the measuring stick of worship. Second, 
We had a shift in the culture to, to a kind of therapeutic individualism. So, so people, and this marked a kind of redefinition of what it meant to be a person. So this is a big deal. Um, amazing book came out last year on this, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. I commend it to you as strongly as I could commend a book. In this shift, I am no longer primarily a part of a family. I'm no longer a part of a tribe or a community. I am a lone individual who, who, who sets out to, I, to make myself whatever I want to be. And the measuring stick in that is not how, because of, um, it's not primarily how I function better in my family or function better in society or function better at my job. Um, no, no, now it's um, because we've cut off the individual from all of those things. Um, your job, by the way, no longer becomes a means by which you connect to and serve society. It becomes a means of self-fulfillment. It becomes a means of, of identifying myself. I am... Saw a banker. I am a banker. I want to be seen as a banker and known as a banker. It doesn't become about the company that I'm a part of or serving the community that I'm a part of or the actual function of the job and how it helps people. It becomes about me and kind of my personal fulfillment. And in that world, because you're now cut off from other people and it's all about kind of identifying yourself, it becomes about making much of yourself, it becomes about kind of crafting um, the, this version of yourself, this idealized version of the self um, in that world, because it's no longer about practically helping me do things out there that involve other people. The goal becomes me feeling good. That's the therapeutic part of it. Set in all kinds of different ways in our culture. Love has been redefined in our culture. This is the easiest way to see um, how this has influenced culture. Um, love has been redefined in our culture, not to mean actually pursuing the objective good at cost to myself of other people. Love has been redefined to doing nothing that makes anyone feel bad or feel afraid or feel unhappy. You see that shift? So that the goal now in this second layer on the cake is not to practically help people, but to feel good, to feel good feelings. And you see in this kind of movement a shift in the church and the church's worship as it adopts kind of these cultural movements such that the goal and the measure of a Sunday morning becomes how did I feel? Did I feel good? Or was I distracted? Think about this in um, terms of the development of the church. Um, windows went away. Kids went away. Kids now have to be put somewhere because they're noisy. And they run around. Sometimes they run on stage. They do all kinds of crazy things. And they're this annoying reminder that you're in the room with other people. Always this annoying reminder that you're with other people. It's like the f most, almost said funnest. That's not a good word. It's the most fun part of having a four-year-old. You're constantly reminded there's someone else there. Dad, 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 look. Dad, can I have a cheese it Dad, dad, are you going to bed? Are you asleep? 
Hey, Daddy, you resting? Daddy, you watching this movie? I keep going, this is an endless joke. Um, but you, and so there's this whole movement in worship to say, how do we, if it's all about me as an individual experiencing good feelings, then what we have to do is we have to black out the room. Um, we have to make it really, really dark. Uh, so that I, I forget the fact that there are other people there. I have to get really loud speakers because we want the sound. I don't want to have to hear Justin singing next to me completely out of tune. That would remind me that there's another person there and he can't sing. And so um, instead what I want is to be dark room so I forget there's a person next to me. I want the kids in some other building even, further away the better, soundproof it so we don't even know they're there. Um, but we can feel good about it because they're getting relevant teaching. Um, and, and so we're going to be in this room and it's dark room and it's super loud. And the only thing we can see is a screen, which is perfect because that's all I stare at all week anyway. Um, and, and there's a band playing loud music, which is cool because relevance is still a part of the cake. Um, and so now the goal and the measuring stick of all of worship is, did I feel good feelings? And then churches become designed. In the old model, they became designed to produce relevance and practical accessibility to everybody. Um, in this new model, it becomes all about how do we create a world where everyone has great feelings? And the measuring stick isn't God. The measuring stick isn't God's word. And add to that the social media age, which just amplifies that sort of therapeutic individualism and amplifies it with kind of a self-selected, well-groomed authenticity. And I use the phrase well-groomed authenticity on purpose because if it's well-groomed, it's not authentic, right? I wake up like this. I mean, for me, it's actually true. I don't do anything to my hair because I don't have any. So I am being very authentic right now. Most of the rest of you did something to your hair. Combed it, put product in it. Whatever the thing is. Um, in other words, and so then you, you see this movement in the church to say, how do we kind of craft the life of the church such that it's kind of this hip, cool aesthetic that people could post on their social medias? Um, interestingly, you've actually seen a movement back towards sort of kind of some historic kind of liturgical practices, um, pretty rooms because dark rooms with lasers aren't very pretty and they aren't very Instagrammable. But if you have like a wooden wall or like a forest even on your stage um, and, and uh, whatever the thing is, uh, it becomes very like Instagrammable, right? So we did a liturgy, it's somehow rooted in some historic faith. So there's, see, I'm authentic and I'm, I'm relevant and I'm thoughtful because I do old, cool things too. And, and so um, um, church becomes kind of this modern expression of therapeutic individualism with the added benefit that you can like TikTok the thing. Um, or TikTok is the word. Uh, I always call it ticky-tocky, which is wrong, my kids say. Um, and so that becomes the goal of church, right? Like, um, and, and that becomes how the church um, organizes worship. Are we hip enough? Are we cool enough? Are we attractive enough to a, a largely secular kind of modern vision of the world um, such that people uh, might think we believe certain weird things, but if they showed up on a Sunday, they'd say, hey, that's a cool room. That's a hip room. It reminds me of Forest Room 5 
or some hip, other hip, cool bar or club in the city that I would go to. And this is just kind of a religious, maybe slightly weird version of that, but I can Instagram it. So that's cool. I mean, this is how church is transformed. And in that model, the measuring stick is not God. It's not God's words. It's not God's um, gifts. It's not the gospel. It's not the glory of God or the pleasure of God or the delight of God. In that model, it's um, how cool do I feel? How appealing are we? We've been overrun with confusion in our day about what worship is. But here's the thing. In Revelation 5, Revelation 22, really all through the Bible, but in those two places, one of my favorite places to go to understand um, um, the vision that God has for the life of the church. Um, these texts are not about some far off future. It is a, um, a, a visual image of what the church is in the world and what it is. Um, it is the, the centerpiece, the, the, the place that, that dwells in and celebrates the mercy of God and the holiness of God and the glory of God that clings to and treasures the words of God, sitting silently to hear those words words read. Um, um, it is the people of God gathered to, to, to be empowered by the Spirit and sent out into the nations. Um, it is um, the people of God gathered for worship um, that's so full of life, so full of joy, so full of power that it spills over such that the entire cosmos is filled with joy. It's worship that becomes a salve that brings healing to the nations. And it has at its center the glory of God, the holiness of God, the word of God. And God's people gathered by grace in his presence to marvel at him and to worship him and to know him, to declare his praises. So where do we go wrong? How, how do we get back to that particular vision. So today, <laughs> in the very short time that remains, I want to walk through a pattern that we see established in scripture that serves as kind of a foundational framework uh, for our understanding of the place of worship and how worship works. And as I do so, I want to make just five observations with some implications attached to them, then we'll take communion. So, um, you may be wondering, this is a, a sermon about worship. Why did we start in Genesis chapter 2? We started in Genesis chapter 2 because Genesis 2 actually lays out for us a kind of a geography or cosmology, if you want to use that term instead. Uh, in other words, an understanding of how the world is actually structured. And there's something vitally important to see about that structure. And it, that, once we see it, you're going to begin to see it everywhere in the Bible. Um, it, it's it's mind-blowing. Um, and, and as you see that structure, you're going to see not only is it repeated over and over again in Scripture, this, this kind of geography of how the world is actually organized, um, uh, not, not only is it repeated, it actually... Um, establishes for us some very clear definitions uh, about what worship is and what we should expect from it um, as we do it, as we do it, week in and week out. In other words, how do we evaluate it? How do we understand, did we do a good job today? 
um, this begins to lay out kind of a vision for where worship sits and a vision for how do we understand how well are we doing at this thing called worship. And so I want to set it out for you here in Genesis 2, and then I'm going to track it through a couple of other places in Scripture um, in the hopes that I can convince you um, that it's all over the place in the Bible. Um, When I commonly, in fact, before I ever saw this, um, when I commonly thought about um, how the world was organized, I rarely thought about geography. I rarely thought about land and garden and and all these different themes um, in Genesis chapter 2. And I remember when somebody pointed out to me um, that this this just really basic distinction that's really, really obvious right off the bat in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. You see the obvious thing there? There's a place called Eden and there's a place called the garden and they're not the same thing. Like water is flowing out of Eden into the garden. Mind-blowing observation. Life-changing. You'll never sing the same again. No, I, I, I want to kind of lay this out. Maybe, maybe lay it a, little bit, a little bit better. Um, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden and told, um, he's told actually in Genesis chapter 1, that they should be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth. So now we've got three geographical spaces. We have the whole earth, we have a land called Eden, and we have a garden. Three different spaces. Um, one theologian, James Jordan, calls it the three-storied world. There is, in God's design of the world, three different spaces, and you see those three spaces repeated, and at the center of all three of those spaces is a garden. What takes place in the garden is one, communion with God. God feeds his people, he provides for his people. And two, instruction from God. God instructs his people on how they're to live. He he commands them to do this and to not do this. And third, offerings or sacrifices. Uh, One interesting observation that was made is that you have sacrifices clearly mentioned in scripture as early as Genesis chapter four. Um, And and the the word to describe the sacrifices taking place in Genesis chapter four are not sacrifices of atonement. It's the same word for just offerings. Offerings. In other words, when Cain and Abel are instructed to bring their offerings to the front of the garden, um, they're not let in the garden, but to pre- present these offerings before God, they're not trying to atone for sin, they're worshiping. So three things you see happening in this three-storied world is one, um, that you come into the garden, and in the garden you receive instruction, you commune with God, God feeds you, he, he eats with you and feeds you. And third, you bring offerings to God as an expression of worship to God. And so the design of the world from the very, very beginning, how the world's actually organized, is that the very, very center of life, all of life, is worship. It's communion with God, bringing offerings to God, receiving instruction from God. And then moving out from there into the surrounding land, you take that land, you work it, and you keep it. 
In other words, you, you take the land that God has provided you and you cause that land to bear fruit. You grow crops. You learn how to, take, to grow grapes and turn grapes into wine and then how to put it into barrels and then how to move it into bottles and then how to sell it. Now boxes with plastic bags. In other words, you take the created world in the land, you cultivate it, you work it, and you cause it to bear fruit. And you also, in the midst of all of that, raise families, raise children to know and fear God as they gather with you in the garden, worshiping God, as they learn to work the land that surrounds the garden. Um, as, that, um, as that number of people multiplies, um, the, the land itself begins to expand so that the whole earth which surrounds the land begins to turn into land. So here's the design for mankind, the design for the world. A a rhythm of gathering in the garden in the presence of God to commune with him, to be instructed by him, to bring our offerings before him, to then work the land, to cause it to bear fruit, to raise up children, to know and fear God, to then go out and as they worship God in the garden, to go out and then expand the bounds of the land such that the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. This is there all the way at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. So what happens after the fall? What happens with Israel? Well, God establishes, reestablishes with Israel this same pattern. And so in Exodus chapter 25 and basically to the end of the book, um, you have established and built a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And for a while, the tent of meeting is kept really far outside from the people because the people are wicked. Um, but the goal and eventually what happens, particularly as you get into the book of Numbers, is the tabernacle moves into the center of um, the 12 tribes of Israel who are organized and spread around the tabernacle which sits at the center. And beyond the 12 tribes of Israel lies the wilderness. And so you have, again, as God reestablishes the people of God um, in the book of Exodus, bringing them out from slavery in Egypt, as he begins to build this, rebuild the world, um, he rebuilds the world in the exact same pattern, a three-storied world. At the center, the tabernacle place where offerings are brought, where people commune via the priests, commune with God, being fed by him, being nourished by him. They receive instructions from the law of God. And that becomes the centerpiece, the the central marker of their life as they work the land surrounding the tabernacle, causing it to bear fruit. And as they're moving in the midst of the wilderness. Then what happens when they get to Jerusalem? Again, the same exact pattern is established. They build a temple. Surrounding the temple is the land, the land of Israel. And surrounding Israel are the nations of the earth. Um, The temple, interestingly enough, is a number of scholars have noted that it was designed very specifically to look like a garden and a vineyard. Um, The the architectural features, um, um, that when you walked in, you would have thought this 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 has gold leafing that looks like a vineyard. It looks like a garden. That's on purpose. 
Because God is reestablishing again now in Jerusalem at the very center of the life of the people of God, a new garden surrounded by land and from which that land will expand to reach, to transform the nations of the earth. And finally, what about with Jesus? Surely God blew that whole thing up with Jesus, right? Well, fascinatingly, in a number of different places in the New Testament, but particularly in Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul says that God now is building a new temple. The chief cornerstone of that temple is Jesus. That temple, again, is the place where the people of God come to commune with God, to bring their offerings to God, to be instructed by God. Um, And that temple now is the local church, surrounded by land that we're called to work, whether it's in banks or coffee shops, or maybe you have a garden. Um, working that land, um, raising our children to know and fear and to love God, um, and, and with the goal of that surrounding land being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and we are surrounded still by the nations. Um, this threefold pattern is established all through Scripture. This is what God designed humanity to do and to be. A people centered on the worship of God, communing with him, bringing offerings to him, receiving from him, working the land, expanding the land so that the nations are transformed. That's foundational. Um, And so now, given kind of that pattern, that threefold pattern um, that continues throughout scripture and that we're in the midst of right now, which means that right now, by the way, in this room, this is the temple. We've gathered here for worship. We're in the presence of God, communing with him, being instructed by him through his word. And we have already brought offerings to him to worship him. A few observations um, and applications that flow from this. Number one, worship is from the beginning. It's the very center of what it means to be human and to participate in the human vocation. It does not exist to serve some other purpose Um, It is an end unto itself. It has been there from the very beginning. Religion is not kind of a later evolutionary development. Um, It was established at creation. Um, This is what you were made for. To bring offerings to God, to be instructed by God, and to commune with God. This is the center. This is the absolute center. Everything else. And there's so many other things that God gives us. But all of those things flow from this. It was established from the start. It's not a later addition. It's not a thing that had to be tacked on because of the nature of sin. Um, It is there from the beginning. Worship is central to what it means to be human. It is central to creation itself. Which is to say, to fail to gather with the people of God and to worship in the presence of God is a failure of obedience, but it's also um, a falling short of what you were made for and what everyone was made for. Your neighbor, whether they believe in Christ or not, was made to worship God. Christ makes it possible. But they were made to worship him. 
And every week that they do not gather with the people of God, they accrue upon their lives judgment. This is one of the reasons why the the, the COVID lockdowns and all of the things that took place in 2020 were devastating. Churches stopped gathering for worship, many of them for over a year. Many people stopped going to church, whether their churches were meeting or not, and still haven't gathered with the saints. Apart from discussing the the wisdom of that move, apart from discussing um, all of the other issues tied to that, can you at least see how if you want to erode the very humanity of mankind, if you want to destroy their God-given vocation in the world, if you want to destroy everything else that flows from that, whether that's marriages or the lives of children or the vocation of the work that we're to do, can you think of a better way to do it than to convince thousands upon thousands of churches to stop gathering to do the thing that people exist to do. Worship is from the beginning. It is essential. It is necessary. And so therefore, make the gathered worship of God's people central, a priority for you and your family. Don't see it as something to be tacked on. Don't see it as something that that maybe you want to do, see it as essential to your very life. Second, throughout its history, throughout this pattern, worship is always religious. And here's what I mean by that. Um, The word religion has kind of taken on some pejorative meaning in our day, such that it means uh, doing something. Sometimes religion can be used as a descriptor for you do certain works so that God will approve of you. That, that's not what I'm saying. Just so you know, um, you don't do, we don't do things in this room so that God will approve of us. And what I mean by saying that worship has always been religious, but what I mean is that it has always had forms. It's always done things. In other words, worship all the way through scripture is never something that happens quietly in your own heart. It's something that happens publicly. It's something that people can look at and observe and listen to and watch. Um, Which is to say, it has always been liturgical. In other words, it always follows a pattern, an observable pattern among the people of God when they worship. And it matters very much to God. No one can read the Bible and say that God doesn't really care about how you worship him or what it looks like. It's the last thing you would deduce. So it's ironic in our day that that we have such a laissez-faire attitude about the forms that worship takes in the church. Like, you know that God killed people, like, like regularly, killed them for not worshiping according to the way that he instructed them to worship. Unless you think that's just sort of kind of some Old Testament relic, um, you have Paul condemning the church in Corinth um, because they're not celebrating communion in the way that God had designed. And as a result, people were getting sick and dying. And Paul says, God did that. God's causing them to get sick and die because you're not obeying him in the way that you're to celebrate and worship. You're not following the right liturgy. You're doing so because of your selfishness. You're doing so because of your pride. And you are facing the judgment of God because of it. 
So, so this worship, this pattern that we see kind of running throughout scripture um, defines worship both as central and two as always having outward forms that God gives very specific instructions about that, how that outward form should look. Therefore, every Sunday we follow a liturgy. That liturgy actually has been very broadly used in the history of the church. See different forms of it in the Anglican church and the Reformed church and the Lutheran church. It's, it's a liturgy that someone didn't just kind of make up, say, in the second or third century or in the 1500s. Um, it, it actually is a liturgy that's grounded in and rooted in um, the offerings and the process of worship that's established um, in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus as it lays out how Israel is to worship in the presence of God. So we follow a liturgy when we gather on Sundays. And second, as you think about worship, what we do in this room... Um, the way that we sing, the way that we confess our sins, the way that we pray, the way that we get on our knees, the way that we lift our hands, um, the way that we eat bread and drink wine and listen to a guy drone on too long. Um, all of those things are, are, are acts of worship. And so your expectation when you gather for worship on a Sunday, um, it's become like popular in certain kinds of churches to speak of worship not as a worship service, not as um, coming to follow a liturgy. It's, been, it's, it's called a worship experience. The idea being that you come and passively experience worship. Ah! Sorry. No. <laughs> you come to work. You know that? We gather in this room, we're going to work. You should, have, you should be tired when you leave here on Sunday. You've stood, you've sung, you've sung with all of your might. You've listened and thought hard about the scriptures. Um, you've confessed your sins. You've gotten on your knees, your knees hurt. And I'm getting old and my knees hurt every Sunday when I get down. It's proof that I'm old. Like you should come and do stuff and that stuff should make you tired as you come and bring offerings to God. Worship has always been religious. It's always been seeable, touchable, listenable, listenable too. Third observation. Worship is always covenantal and communal. It involves other people. When God establishes worship in the garden, there's already other people there. Right from the beginning. Worship isn't established, you know, as Adam has a quiet time under a certain tree that looks like a closet, um, having good warm feelings in his heart with God. It's established from the very, very beginning with Eve, there's community, there's a communion, there's a covenant community from the very, very beginning as worship is established in the garden. Worship is not primarily something that you do in your hearts before God. And, and, and listen to me, I, I want you to have warm affections for God. I want you to love God and to feel things. But the center of worship is that we come together as a covenant community with other people to do things in the presence of God that he's commanded us to do. And here's another thing for all you Baptists in the room. Children have always been included in that work. Like you, you never find like God saying, hey, like make sure you keep your kids out of the temple. They're noisy. And they'll probably step on some blood. And blood is gross. And there's lots of blood in the temple. So let's just keep them out. The kids are always present. So you want to know why kids are in this room and we love to have kids in this room? 
because they're part of the covenant community that's gathered in the presence of God to worship God. And I love all of you Baptists. You love it that you're in our church. And whatever. Okay, so got worried I was offending someone and then decided to not care. So there we go. It always involves a covenant community. So therefore, you should learn to see other people and their terrible voices and their off-key singing and their noisy children who are running sprints through the room. You should learn to see this community and the people in it and the noises, even the noises right now of the kids as a feature of what we do on a Sunday, not a bug. Not an annoyance, but a sign of God's mercy and grace as he's called us together and formed us as a communal people. Four, worship was designed and f- to form and to renew the culture around it. Um, the, the idea from the garden out, I, I, I take to that the reason why the, the, the garden is at the center and the tabernacle is at the center and the temple is at the center and now the church and the life and the worship of the church is at the center is because what we do here is actually meant to shape, to form, to disciple us in all of the other vocations that God has given us in the world. And so we're going to be talking about this over the next five weeks. Um, if you think about how, what a culture is, think about the culture of your family. Um, you have a certain way as a family of using words and speaking to one another. You, you maybe even have your own little lingo that only you understand that makes you weird, but that's cool. Um, you have your own songs. You have your own ways that you go about eating food. In our family, we um, gather at a table. We sing, a, we pray, and then we sing a song together. Um, and then we sit down and we eat and we pass the meal and we, conversation goes a certain way. Um, so so um, there's language, there's food, there's song, um, there's ways of working and resting and rhythms and how that works. And so we have kind of seasonal work in our home. So there's football season and then there's um, the other parts of the year when stuff gets done on Saturdays. Um, and, and some of you may have different patterns and, and how work and rest works in your family. My wife just lowered her head. Um, like... Like this is how culture works, but, but all of those things are just supposed to be reshaped and redefined by what we do here on a Sunday. So, so, so that words and how we speak to one another is actually changed by and reformed and taught to us in the liturgy. We speak things that are true. We speak things that align with the words of God. God even instructs us on how we're to speak to one another with gentleness, with kindness, with courage, with grace and truth. He teaches us about how we eat. Um, that, that we gather at a table, that God provides food for us week in and week out. Um, this means that when you sit down to dinner um, as a family, something that should shape the culture of eating is acknowledging that God himself has provided all of these good things. Um, the culture should be transformed, which means we're constantly, by the way, this is a warning, going to find ourselves either in conflict or being compromised by the surrounding culture. Because worship is always engaging, always pushing on culture or taking in the surrounding and corrupting pagan culture around it. So therefore, therefore, let, with great intentionality, let our worship Center your schedule, your priorities. Let it shape your life at home. Let it shape your life in the workplace. And how you speak to others, how you eat with others, how you um, receive with others, how you sing with others, how you relate to others. Let it define and shape all of those things. 
And last, worship is made possible by the blood of Jesus. It can only happen in and through the blood of Jesus. And it has as its absolute center, God. The problem created by the sin of Adam and Eve and our continuing sin since is that they no longer had access to the garden. Um, an, an angel with a sword was put at the gate so that they could no longer enter in. And from that moment forward, to enter into the garden, to come into the tabernacle, to gather in the temple, and now to gather in the presence of God in and through the worship of the church. In other words, for us to come into the heavenly of heavenlies, into the presence in the throne room of God, there must be blood. We've been made unclean. God has provided it. Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross. And the great goal was not merely your emotional satisfaction and happiness. It was not merely so you could go to, in some kind of ethereal way, heaven someday when you die. It was so that you could gather in this room Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with confidence and joy in the presence of God. In other words, one of the fundamental, in fact, the fundamental purpose of the death of Jesus is you might have, again, access to God in worship. Think about that. Jesus died so that you would worship him. Jesus died on the cross so that you would worship God forever and ever and ever. Is worship central? There is nothing more central in all of the universe. The center of it is God. The center of the death of Jesus is God. The purpose of everything in life is God. The measuring stick of, of, of every Sunday when we gather, of every sermon preached, um, of every song sung is, is God pleased? And he can only be pleased because of the blood of Jesus. Let's pray and prepare for communion. To receive the good gift of sitting at a table and eating with our Father. May we marvel that you come to eat with us. This isn't just a set of religious symbols. It is us sitting down to commune with the living God who provides both the sacrifice and the meal. In your name we pray, amen.